Discrimination and the environment. Two topics that are discussed a lot, but not that often together in criminology. In this episode, we'll be thinking about how global power dynamics influence how we collectively relate to nature and our physical environments, and how this intersects with criminology. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Dr. David Rodriguez-Goyes, a Colombian lawyer by training, is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oslo, where he gained his PhD in criminology. His main field of research is green criminology, with a focus on biopiracy. His new book, Southern Green Criminology, A Science to End Ecological Discrimination, focuses on the threat the Western world poses to the rest of the globe, and how Western-imposed ideas of progress are damaging the planet especially the Southern Hemisphere. And on top of that, he also participated in the Colombian peace process. So I have a hundred questions to ask him. Dr. David, welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you very much. It's quite an honor to be invited to this program. Well, thank you for taking the time to come and speak about your work. And first of all, how, how are you at the moment? How are things in Oslo? Well, Oslo is quite an unusual place to be during this time, I know that mm. many countries, many cities are in full or almost full lockdown, but mm-hmm. Norway and also Sweden have adopted a different policy. Uh, we are almost continuing life as usual, so mm-hmm. we can't just go out and uh, hang with friends just one meter distance from each other. But uh, I think the situation is not as dramatic as in other places. And I think this connects with uh, what we are going to be discussing later. Because, of course, Norway is a much stronger economy uh, that can kind of support and afford this kind of crisis. Whereas other countries in the south, in Colombia, my home country, they have to keep a very strict lockdown because... Uh, mm. the, the spread of the virus would be just a huge crisis, even bigger than it already is. Yeah. No, definitely. And, and it definitely speaks to some of the things we, we're going to talk about later. Um, but before we get into that, and um, we talk about green criminology, and I, I want to talk about definitions and things like that, but I wanted to ask you about you, first of all, and find out a little bit about your journey to this point. And what is... What has inspired you to be involved both in the environment and crime together? They're not usually two things people naturally put together straight away. So how did this combination uh, appeal to you? Yeah, that's, that's a very exciting question, and thank you for asking it. So my background, I'm Colombian. I come from a not-so-wealthy family in Colombia, so I'm just, you know, low-middle-class which mm-hmm. means something different in Colombia, right? Because southern mm. countries have a, a different, different middle class. So that, yeah. that meant that we struggled economically during many years when I was younger. Um, mm. And then Colombia is also a country that has a lot of criminality, conflict, different types of conflict, you know, internal armed conflict, uh, just 
street crime, environmental crime, and all of that kind. So mm. I remember, I have in my mind the memories from when I was eight, ten years old with all the bombs exploding, the fear because of the conflict and so on. So mm. I have been exposed to violence, to crime, to conflict from a very young age. Uh, and also the, the fact that I come from a low middle class family has implied for me that I'm very attentive to all that has to do with social justice. Uh, inequalities and so on and mm. then then I when I was studying at the National University of Colombia I was uh, taking the law degree and I was sharing with people from other regions and from Colombia from the capital uh, but then I was sharing with other people from other places that were mm. in a much harsher situation so so I was from the from the very beginning, very interested in all these issues of conflict, violence, and how they affect life, how much suffering they produce. And then when it comes to the combination of crime and environmental issues, it was, it was a coincidence in a way, because I, was, I wanted to take my master's, but then I was struggling economically. I was uh, taking several jobs at the time, and then mm. there was this opportunity to work as a legal assistant on a project of the genetic department at the National University of Colombia. Uh, and they were interested in uh, developing a project on how to exploit the richnesses, the natural richnesses, natural resources of Colombia in a legal way. Uh, so, right. so, so that was the moment when I started to combine the themes of crime with the themes of the environment. But then I have also, I must also highlight a very important influence because when I was tr trying to do that, I was a bit puzzled because my, my training in criminology did not include mm -hmm. anything at all about nature. So I spent uh, many nights trying to find a way to combine them. And then I came across an excellent article written by Professor Ragnil Sulund from the University of Oslo. And I was fascinated by it because it was mm. about green criminology. So, so it was the moment when all the pieces came together. Yeah, and so that's where you did your PhD and that was in biopiracy. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what does that mean? Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it was thanks again to Ragnar Sulund because taking the PhD here in Norway was a big effort both for me and for her, uh, but she has supported me a lot. And that's something that I have learned in academia from people like her and from other mm -hmm. influences to, to be in academia, not just for the prestige uh, involved, but also for other reasons. Uh, but then your question was about biopiracy. And biopiracy was another element that, that came to my life in unexpected ways. Mm. So I was participating in the peace process. I was working for the United Nations and my work was to go to most of the Colombian regions 
to gather inputs from civil society that mm-hmm. would then be taken by the parts negotiating, this means the guerrillas and the government, uh, mm-hmm. to, to build a final peace treaty. Uh, and then I was spending some time alone, sitting, trying to, to, to take a break, to uh, a breath, to rest a little bit. And I heard two peasants talking about the issue of them they not being able to use the seeds that they wanted to use, but being forced by the law and by some corporations to use seeds owned by those corporations. Mm. So, so that was very strange. That's something that doesn't, doesn't uh, add up. There's something strange to it. So then mm-hmm. in the middle of the peace negotiations, that topic came more and more. The idea of some corporations, northern corporations, having the ownership over seeds that peasants have cropped and used for centuries. So that's the concept, that's the idea of biopiracy, how some people are biopirates, how they are stealing the biological resources of the humanity, of other communities. Right. And when you say someone, is it, it's usually large companies from North America or Europe? Is is that, or have I got it wrong? Precisely. It is yeah. precisely like that. So, okay. so that was my first approach to a southern green criminology that we'll, we'll be discussing later. But the idea is yeah. that there are corporations like Monsanto uh, that appropriate these seeds. And they do that because they already have a lot of power. They have mm-hmm. a lot of economic power, but they also have the support of their host country. So they have also a lot of political power. And that means Mm -hmm. that they are able to influence the law in different countries. So in the Colombian legislation, you find that it is a crime to use seeds, certain seeds without uh, the permission of the owner. So, so, So that's a complete twist to the logic that many mm. peasant and indigenous communities have. It is not possible to be the owner of seeds because seeds yeah. are life and we are not supposed to have ownership over life. Yeah, and thousands of years of practice of people doing it a certain way and it being owned jointly and then an organization decide that they have filed for some kind of patent or some kind of ownership of it and then they get to say nobody else can do it and then that becomes a crime so the same thing that people were doing for thousands of years then is criminalized it's precisely precisely like that and it's a very unfair process because of course corporations may make some small modifications over these products but Mm. then they deny the participation of the peasants of the indigenous peoples that have been making those modifications in a natural way for mm. centuries. But they also deny the participation of nature because, of course, nature has also contributed a lot. But then, by some strange logic, they think they are the creators of these products. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is one one way that you're examining, or this is one way that you're working within the broader idea of green criminology. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to make sure that before we go any further that we completely understand what we're talking about when we say green crim- criminology. I know that your book is about southern green criminology, and, and maybe we'll s- split that up even more. But before we get to a southern green criminology, what, what do you mean by green criminology? Is it as simple as crime happening linked to the environment? You can say that. You can say that it is as simple as crime linked to the environment. You can also make it a little bit more complex and add some more elements. I really mm-hmm. liked your definition because <laughs> kind of putting complex ideas in simple words is a big virtue. Uh, but there are many, many definitions of green criminology. Uh, there are many extremely talented scholars working with green criminology. They have suggested different definitions of what green criminology is. Uh, but then I, I also needed to have my own definition of green criminology to mm-hmm. use it as a guide. So, so I understand green criminology as using the tools that criminology provides to analyze the transgressions and conflicts that appear upon the interaction of humans with our natural surroundings. And then Mm. those transgressions can affect humans or non-human animals or ecosystems. So it's it's broadly that, the the study Mm. of those dynamics behind and around transgressions. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. And the other part of your title is a Southern criminology. So... Do you see green criminology and southern criminology as two separate paradigms that you're bringing together in this book? Or do you see southern green criminology as its own thing in its own right? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, I don't see them as separate Mm. themes. I don't see them as separate frameworks. But I think that the combination provides a very strong tool, analytical tool, Mm. And of course, my book and this idea of a Southern Green Criminology, uh, I've been developing it for some seven, eight years, and then I presented the whole idea in this book. Uh, But uh, I cannot say that this is my idea, that I'm the creator of Southern Green Criminology. That's not Mm -hmm. how academia works. So I have had a lot of inspiration from different sources, and I have learned a lot from a lot of scholars. Mm, So of course, this idea of Southern criminology proposed by Kerry Carrington, uh, Maximus also, and other colleagues was very influential in my work because Mm -hmm. I was in a way already doing Southern criminology without using that label. But when they proposed this concept, then it gained, the, the whole project gained a lot of coherence it gained Mm -hmm. more theoretical depth. Mm. Mm -hmm. But then, as I was doing green criminology, as I was studying environmental conflicts and environmental crimes in Latin America, that was 
my first step, I, I started with Colombia, with the, with the issue of seeds, but then I moved to other uh, types of environmental crimes and other types mm. of environmental conflicts, like uh, the traffic of illegal, uh, sorry, the illegal wildlife trade, trafficking mm. of wildlife, um, other topics like mining and so on. And it was in the context of South American countries, of Latin American mm. countries. So, of course, that dimension of colonialism, imperialism, was always present. Mm. In a way, when I was, just by the fact that I was doing green criminology in the South and inspired by the voices of the peasants, the indigenous communities who are usually the victims, that meant in a way that I was doing Southern criminology. So, so regarding your question, I think there's a very good fit between the two, such a good fit that you cannot say that they are two different things, that I mm. think they are complementary and they strengthen each other. Yeah, and I know that you talk about some of the sort of the key concepts through Southern criminology linked to the idea of the core and the periphery or... Um, global North and Global South and we're going to hear a, a short clip that you've kindly recorded for us about how that has influenced you but is there anything else before we play that clip um, you'd like to say about these concepts of the core and the periphery countries? Yeah, these this are concepts that other scholars have suggested mm -hmm. uh, the, the most popular scholar is Wallerstein, who suggested this idea of the world systems and the concepts of core and periphery. Uh, and then there are other scholars that have suggested the idea of north and south. But of course, our task as scholars is to take those concepts mm. and modify them, update them through empirical work, and especially through empirical work that considers the realities of the South. Southern Green Criminology is founded upon the North-South division as a central analytical category. This division is invaluable in the study of the historical impact of colonial and imperial practices in instances of conflict and violence. Indeed, the colonizing structure of North-South remains almost intact, sustaining an uneven distribution of political, economic, and epistemological power and capital between the Global North and the Global South. This allows Northern countries, first, to frame international legal instruments that regulate human interaction with nature, both physical resources and intellectual property rights, second, to extract and dispose of environmental products from southern countries, even at the cost of environmental destruction and conflict. Third, to impose environmental practices on the south to the detriment of local practices. Similarly, the core periphery conceptualization is a cornerstone of southern green criminology. Core countries are those that have quasi-monopolies over financial institutions, media and communication systems, 
technologies and weapons of mass destruction. Peripheral countries are those that generate raw natural materials and unqualified labor force, which core countries exploit. Because core countries monopolize financial institutions and establish global economic rules, product exchange between core and peripheral countries results in a flow of surplus value, meaning here a large part of the real profits from multiple local productions, to those states that have a large number of core-like processes. Three epistemological insights are evident in this theorization. First, that the daily dynamics of northern and southern countries are inseparably linked. Second, that the implementation of global policies developed by northern countries threatens the fulfillment of basic collective needs in southern countries. Third, that as a consequence of the above, north-south divides are a key driver of environmental conflict and crime. Okay, thanks for that. I can, I can really see that this north-south division frames your analysis. And so I wondered if I could ask you to expand on a few points. Absolutely. You talk about how this geographical power imbalance frames international instruments that regulate human interaction with nature. So I want to ask you, what instruments are you talking about here? And what are the consequences of specific countries with a recent history of being global centers of power? What's the consequence of those countries being the ones who set the agenda? Yeah, this is another fantastic question, because when I mention instruments, those are instruments that are everywhere in everyday life. So first I started thinking about the law, because I conducted this research in Colombia, wondering <laughs> how a specific law regulating the use of seeds came to be because mm. that specific law was detrimental to the interests of the Colombian rural populations. Mm. And so I was very surprised to see that law because supposedly, or at least this is what we learn, is that the state, the Colombian state and every other state is sovereign. To, to produce its own laws, right? But then... It's sovereign. Yeah, sovereign, yeah. 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 So, but then the question is, why is the state producing laws that go against the interests of its own citizens, of the majority yeah. of its own citizens? So exactly. I just started conducting, conducting that research. Uh, and I started interviewing many politicians, I started interviewing corporations and many other relevant stakeholders. Mm. And then there were many of those interviewees who were very honest and said this was a direct imposition from the United States of America on the Colombian government. It was a clear wow. instruction that we should have this law in our legislation. Mm. Otherwise, 
they would withdraw different types of support they give us and we mm -hmm. would be punished politically and economically in different ways. So that's a very clear example of how the uneven political and economic power plays out in the regulation of our interactions with nature. Right, right. And so you think, just just to expand on that or just going to understand a bit more detail, are you saying that it's it's likely to be, in, in this case, the US, their sort of trade ambassadors or uh, trade secretaries or is it to do with security agencies like who who is that's putting the pressure on yeah so and obviously it's it's going to be unofficial rather than out in the open i i presume yeah so so it was clear that the main actor pushing the u.s government to do this were the corporations hmm hosted by the U.S. government. And all this okay. happened in the frame of the free trade agreement. So mm. they were negotiating the terms of that agreement. And basically, the U.S. were dictating the contents. And mm. any kind of suggestion or demand that the Colombian government would do was basically just denied or refused because uh, okay. What the U.S. government was trying to do was to protect the economic interests of the corporations that they host. Mm. So, so, so this was this was obviously it's not explicitly documented, uh, but many of the informants, many of the interviews that participated in those negotiations confirmed that fact. Politicians but also the negotiators from both parts. So, so this is something, as I said, that shows the, the uneven power that the different mm. parts have. And this is something that other scholars, like Rhys Walters, has also, have also documented. Um, he has documented similar maneuvers of the US government toward mm. African countries. Mm. Okay, great, thank you. But I think maybe this links to my next question a little bit in that you also talk about um, the extraction and disposal of environmental products from southern countries, even at the cost of environmental destruction and conflict. So is this linked to the same thing or could you give us an example or two of this? I think everything is linked. It's mm. There are some specificities and differences to these dynamics and concepts but everything is part of the same of the same complex dynamic hmm. so when I'm talking about the extraction of materials it is there are many examples of how northern or uh, core countries go and use the resources of the peripheral mm -hmm. countries to satisfy their desires, to satisfy some partly their needs, but mostly their desires. So let me mm -hmm. let me go to a different uh, component of nature. Let me go to the non-human animals because this is mm -hmm. an excellent example of this point. There is a lot 
of illegal wildlife trade between South America and Europe. There are many animals that are taken out of Latin American countries and taken to Europe. And many of these animals are used for collections. This means right. that these animals are used to satisfy the desires of some collectors in Europe, which destroys mm. on the one hand the ecosystems of the South American countries, because when you extract many animals, when you abduct, would Ragnar say, many animals, that alters yeah. the balance of the ecosystem. And then they go to feel desires, dark desires, you could say, of European collectors, because they are, those are not basic needs. Those are just uh, desires that end up harming Latin America. Yeah, things they think Southern are countries. exotic. Exactly. So they collect everything from birds to snakes to frogs to many other species. Right, right. And then the other component of your question was the transference of harm. And mm. there are many examples of how northern countries just dispose their waste in southern countries. There's this famous case of the pro koala uh, chip that gather a lot of toxic waste and then dispose that in African countries. So the basic idea is that many times northern countries do not know what to do with the, with the waste that they produce. Northern mm. countries are quite rich. People can afford to consume many things, uh, electronic devices, computers, cell phones, and so on. And this is dictated in big part by the trends, by the fashion. But then mm -hmm. they don't want to keep that waste when you just think your cell phone is out, uh, it's not fashionable anymore mm. and you just want to dispose it, your northern home country does not want to have that waste because that will affect the environment. And what they mm. do is they pay low prices to southern countries to accept that waste, but that waste, of course, is detrimental to the environmental health of the southern countries and therefore it affects the well-being of the human and non-human inhabitants of the south yeah 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 i know um some of my students studying criminology are, are very interested in that side of things and it happens a lot more than people realize i think people in western or northern countries think oh you know i have this rubbish or i have this these things that i can recycle and they believe that everything is going into some kind of positive end where it'll be recycled cleanly and you know we'll live again without damaging the environment and don't realize actually where a lot of their rubbish or recycling absolutely are. absolutely and i think that's the importance of highlighting these realities because yeah. when all this suffering and violence and destruction is far from us, 
it is easy to forget about it. Mm. So I think perhaps you may you want to talk a bit more about this later, but this is why I'm, I am so committed to this project mm. of showing what happens when certain societies just keep consuming and consuming and consuming. I want to show what are the effects of that consumerism in other locations of the world. Mm. And do you link your work to climate change in any way? I have worked with climate change Mm -hmm. and I have worked with climate change in a way that is very specific to Southern Mm -hmm. green criminology. Because one of the specificities of this framework is that it is inspired by the realities of the South, by the voices of the victims of certain Mm -hmm. environmental harms and crimes. So my research on climate change was to see how and why a specific population in Colombia, how they contribute to climate change, but also Mm -hmm. to see what are the repercussions of climate change on their community, territory, Mm -hmm. and so on. And then what I found out is that there are many different dynamics that make them contribute to climate change. But many of those dynamics are practices that Mm -hmm. were colonial impositions on -hmm. them. So, for instance, there's there's this concept of the cattle culture. The cattle culture indicates that having cattle is a dignified business, a dignified activity. That's something Mm. that the lords do, that the elites do. But then growing food, it is an undignified activity and is under the logic of this cattle culture. And it is an undignified activity because then you have to use your hands, uh, you have to mix with the dirt, and then that is for the servants. So that was an idea that was imposed since the colonial times, where the Spaniards were the owners of cattle, and then the indigenous and the slaves, the Afro-slaves, and the peasants were the ones cropping food. But that idea of the the cattle culture and of dignified and undignified work has affected current practices. And even Mm -hmm. the local population, the rural communities, have embraced that idea. And as you very well know, this uh, having cattle is a big contributor climate change because of the uh, emissions of carbon dioxide and all the space that they take and you have to remove the trees and so on. So so that was my approach to to climate change. There are many other dynamics that make these communities contribute, but then you still see the consequences of colonialism and imperialism in the practices of these communities that end up uh, being contributors to climate change, and then they are not 
the main contributors to climate change, but they are yeah. the ones that, that suffer the harshest consequences of climate change because they don't have the economic resources to yeah. prevent all these disasters associated to climate change. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, that, that demand for the huge numbers of cattle doesn't come from Colombia, it comes from outside of Colombia, the, the, the desire for that number of people. But it's really interesting that you mentioned this because I wanted to ask you about the sort of the um, imposition of specific practices. And here you've talked about sort of the imposition of more cultural understandings of what is valued and what is not valued. But then there's also this thinking around imposition of the solutions. So when we talk about how do we tackle problems of the environment, climate change, the practices, again, tend to be set by certain groups. And um, I guess the challenge from the opposite side would be that if there are nations more technologically developed, those communities may have researched and tested things that work. So what do you, th what do you say to those people that say it makes sense for those countries to be spreading their ideas about practices to combat climate issues? Yeah, so I think we have covered different aspects of the uneven distribution of power and capital between the North and the South. And then mm -hmm. we have to remember that epistemological power is another type of capital, that knowledge is a very powerful tool. And as you very well said, what is happening nowadays, or what has been happening actually for many centuries, is that core countries have been imposing their knowledge over hmm. peripheral or southern countries. Yeah. And that, so when you say epistemological power, by that, do you mean just sort of people that aren't familiar with this kind of terminology, sort of they're able to set the framework of thinking, the way people understand knowledge. And so um, when you say epistemological power, it's, it's the power to decide how somebody thinks about a topic. Absolutely. It is exactly yeah. like that. How people yeah. think about something, how people understand reality, what people consider is true and false, what people consider is good and bad, what people mm. think is problematic and what is a solution. That is Great. what I Thanks. try to refer to when I say epistemological power. So, so the North or the core still has a, a superiority when it comes mm. to the idea of being the ideal group to produce knowledge. If mm. we check the statistics, it is mainly Northern institutions that produce peer-reviewed articles, peer-reviewed books, and that gives the impression that is the people from the north, the ones that have more power, more cap capabilities, more mm. intelligence in a way to produce mm. knowledge. But uh, that is not the case. The case is that everyone, disregarding where they are, they have the possibility to produce knowledge. The difference is how people use and disseminate the knowledge that they produce. Mm. So, as it is in Europe, 
that this idea of uh, peer reviewing and academies was born, then most people assume that the best scientists are in the North and that, mm. and that allows the North to impose ways of understanding and of seeing reality over populations in the South. And that has transformed the local practices mm. of the rural communities in the South. For, for instance, this example of the Green Revolution, the, the Green Revolution is something that sounds positive, but mm -hmm. it is not. The Green Revolution is that, that idea that you should only crop one product at the time, that you should remove trees from uh, the crops, that you should remove animals from the crops, and that you should not mix different uh, crops. And that was created by a northern scientist as a solution for, for the problem of food production because he said that would increase the production. But that right. created actually a environmental crisis because that altered the ecosystems. So mm. I want to go back to your question. And partly the idea of a southern green criminology is to highlight the knowledge that the people in the South have mm. and show that their practices can be useful and valid solutions to the current environmental crisis. I'd like to ask you now about the actual process of writing the book. It's a very detailed book and covers a lot of ground. And so I just wondered if you could talk about how long it took, the writing, the publishing, and just generally putting it out into the world. How did you find it? Yeah, happily. So there are many lessons with this book. And the first lesson, I think, is to show that knowledge is not created by one individual. It mm -hmm. is the product of many minds. So this book contains the contributions from many, many people. And whereas I wrote the book in six months, the research process took me eight, nine years because this book contains all the findings from nine years of research. It is wow. the summary of my whole trajectory in the field mm. of green, of southern green criminology. Uh, and when I said, when I say that it contains the ideas of many people, I mean the ideas of the people that shared their knowledge with me, peasants, indigenous communities, Afro-descendants, mm. uh, there's another group called Raizales, um, and they shared that knowledge with me either directly or indirectly. So it could be via interviews for, for research or just in conversations that were not at all meant to be part of a research project of, of a book and that I have not used in the book, but that have mm. inspired me and helped me understand certain realities. And of course, mm. this book is as well in a way, a product of the many colleagues with 
which I have collaborated. So I have learned a lot from many brilliant criminologists like Nigel South and Rob White and Tanya Wyatt, Ragnil Sulund and many others. So, so that was the first lesson. But then writing, writing a book, as you very well know, takes a lot of effort. Mm. But I was really inspired when I was writing this book. I was in Colombia. I was living in Colombia. I was working at a university that has some 60, 70 or even more percent of indigenous students. So oh. I saw through them and I heard them talk about all the violence and all the environmental degradation that goes on in their territories. So whereas it was a very big effort, I was also very motivated and passionate about doing this because I think it's important to spread the word and, and show what is going on in these locations. Mm. Mm. So you talk about discrimination. Yes. And so there's a, there's, you write, so I'm going to quote you back to yourself here. So you say, discrimination is often seen as the source of the violations of South African apartheid, the Holocaust and slavery in the Americas. Discrimination is much less often used in an ecological sense. So I want to ask you, what do you, what can you tell us about ecological discrimination? Yeah, this is, this is a concept that I'm very happy with because I started playing with the idea of ecological discrimination because I saw a lot of that. But then when I would mention the concept of ecological discrimination, many of my colleagues would look a bit queerly to me. <laughs> because I, this is what, what are you talking about, right? Uh, because yeah. that's what happens when someone says discrimination. You immediately yeah. associate that with uh, racial discrimination. Mm. You go to South Africa, you go to the US, or you go to the many other locations where racial yeah. discrimination takes place. Um, harder to pick where it doesn't, I think. Yeah. So, so, so but, I, but I, at the time I had all these uh, research findings in my mind, and I, mm. and I was aware that that was also discrimination, and that was discrimination in many ways. And discrimination can be, or discrimination actually is separating one group from some others. Hmm. That is kind of the basic definition of discrimination, to differentiate. Hmm. But then discrimination has also a negative connotation and it's to create a hierarchy between the groups that you have separated. And hmm. I see that many of the environmental harms that take place in the global south are due to that kind of negative differentiation between the groups. And I can explain a little bit more, because when we were talking about the imposition of practices, the imposition of knowledge that some groups tell the others how to behave, that is a product of environmental discrimination. It is a product mm. of believing that some groups are better at creating knowledge related to nature than other groups. 
than that Western or Northern or core countries mm. are smarter when studying nature than Southern countries. And that's discrimination. But then you also have other types of discrimination. You also have discrimination between species. So the exploitation of non-human animals is mm -hmm. also a type of ecological discrimination because you differentiate between groups and then you create a hierarchy. So to me, ecological discrimination permeates the many types and many forms of ecological destruction, environmental uh, crime and harm and conflict that takes place in the South. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and then you talk about a science to end discrimination. Yes, because my purpose with this book is not to, it is not to show off, definitely. <laughs> I didn't write this to write a book before I die. Mm. Uh, but it has a purpose. And the purpose of this book and the purpose of my work in general is to try and debunk the myths that sustain ecological discrimination. Mm. The purpose of this book and my work is to understand the dynamics that creates a lot of environmental degradation and destruction. But also I, of course, use the word science on purpose. Mm -hmm. Because many times people say that this kind of approach, which is in a way activism, is not science. And I wanted to show that this is science. Mm. This is valid knowledge. It is not perhaps the knowledge that other people would create, other people who regard themselves as neutral. Mm. But this is also valid knowledge. And this is also use, useful knowledge. And to me, the purpose of science is to improve the quality of life of the many beings in the planet mm. and of ecosystems. So, so the purpose of this book is yeah, to give an overview of different topics, types of crimes, but also to enable the reader to develop his or her own studies to try and contribute mm -hmm. to transform the understanding of the people and to come with more sound policies and so on. And in, in summary, to contribute to improving the conditions and the situation for the many human and non-human communities, especially in the South. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you have a science to end discrimination and then that's also a science of the discriminated against. Yes. Is a way that you put it in the book. Yes. Yeah. And it is a science of the discriminated again against because, as I mentioned, this is not just my book. This is the book of the many people that have shared mm -hmm. their knowledge with me. This is a book that has some interesting insights, thanks to 
the experiences and thanks to the knowledge of the people that have been victimized by these events. So, so in this book, I invite the reader, the scholar, the practitioner to rely on the knowledge of the victims, this, uh, this knowledge from, from below, this knowledge that takes the perspective of those that are usually considered knowledge-less, those mm. that experience the suffering, those that perhaps have not gone to school, much less to universities, but that still has, have a lot to say because they have been fighting to reduce the harm, they have been trying to survive, they have been trying to protect their nature. Mm. It's about legitimizing their version of knowledge, which might be seen as different, but you're, the whole point is you're saying it's just as legitimate as any other form of knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. Great. And I know that now we have another clip that talk, that speaks to how you're thinking, how you're feeling when you're writing the book. And again, you, you mentioned this specific date that was important to you on the 17th of December 2012. Yes. where you uh, overheard the people's talking. And so just before we hear the clip, is there anything else you'd like to tell us context-wise about that? Yes, uh, as I mentioned, I started working with this idea of a Southern Green Criminology for eight years ago when I heard that conversation. And mm -hmm. that was in the frame of the peace negotiations. And I want to say that uh, it was something many, very meaningful to me. And this is, um, um, I try to be as honest and, and as genuine as I can, because mm. I have shared and I have had conversations with thousands of victims of violence. I have shared with many people that have lost their families, that have mm. seen how their parents are killed, that have been forced to move to the cities and become beggars in there. I have seen a lot of suffering. I have mm. worked as a lawyer to try to help them a little bit, to get some support from the state. And then there's something burning inside of me. So what I experienced in the peace process and what I experienced before the peace process when working as a lawyer is not just intellectual curiosity. It is something that goes beyond. It's real life. It is suffering. So that's the context in which I produced this book. There is much confusion in my mind. The distance and differences that exist between the academic world and the rural worlds of my research are not easy to reconcile. Academia demands a constant increase in the pace of production to gain academic credentials and climb the academic ladder. Colombian rural populations offered me what they had despite struggling to find the minimum means to survive. Food, water, health services and hopefully electricity. The comfort found in academia seems in means when compared to the hardships endured by rural communities in Colombia. The daily problems faced in academia 
seen minute in relation to those experienced by indigenous communities. My confusion arose because I was able to enjoy the comforts offered by the academic world thanks to the generosity of the colonial rural populations, while they were still immersed in serious problems. Nonetheless, the passion that was awakened that 17th day of December in 2012, when for the first time I heard several peasants talk about the problems they were experiencing because of the way nature was being monopolized, was still there. But that passion is not the only thing that remains. The challenge to determine how best to use my academic credentials and the resources of the academy to contribute positively to the situation of the marginalized groups I work with is also present. I am keenly aware of the peril of publishing for the sake of publishing, of falling into an industrial machine that seeks to obtain economic profit from knowledge instead of producing knowledge to prevent harms. As part of the project of contributing to the structural transformation of the harmful contexts of many in impoverished locations, through green criminology research, this book aims to inspire further scientific research that not only exposes ecological discrimination for what it is, but that also actively opposes and curbs its reach. When you start with a phrase, there is much confusion in my mind, I know it's going to be an interesting passage. Um, so I have to say, it's, it really speaks to the stress that I've been thinking about and how to be the best version of myself I can be as a researcher, as a project coordinator, as, as a man trying to have a positive impact in the world somehow. And you, you deal with such large scale problems. How do you how do you deal with the fact that you're just one person in a big world and these large scale problems? It is almost unbearable, to be honest. Yeah. Because you are constantly seeing and you are very much aware of all the things that are going wrong with the world and with humanity. And you mm. really burn, you know this very well, you really burn to do something to try to help. Mm. Uh, exactly. And then, and then you're just one person, right? Yeah. I remember a conversation that I had with a very good friend, Haneke Moll, uh, at the conference of the American Society of Criminology. We were there and we were talking about all these things that are mm -hmm. wrong with the world. And we were up to until 2 a.m., completely sad, kind of feeling powerless. But then, yeah. then you find other people, other people that have a lot of strength and you don't know where they get that strength from. Mm. And that people, by that people, I mean the victims of many of these crimes. We mm. are researchers, we are scholars, we are affected by this because it's not easy to, to tackle this. But somehow those who have been victims have a lot of strength so I have shared a lot with uh, victims of the armed conflict. I have shared a lot with victims of environmental degradation. 
and they meet me and they smile and they just tell me, come on, keep going, keep going. This is a struggle in which mm. all of us are taking part. This is, we don't need just one hero. We need many committed people to try and change this. And then you gain new motivation. And I think still uh, meeting you, talking to you, putting the effort to, to, to produce this podcast, it is something that it's not going to be solved by one person. It is mm. a common effort. So although it is very difficult and it, uh, it is very saddening, many of the things that are going on, I still trust and I still have belief that there are so many people putting an effort and trying to cooperate that I think we still can do something to reverse mm. the trend. Well, yeah, I think they're really, really strong sentiments. I, I completely agree with it. <laughs> I don't really know what to say with that other than I want to hear more of what you, what you think about this. So given, given that, you know, it needs so many people's energies combining. How do you choose how you invest your energies? You know, you've talked about sort of the pressure to publish in academia and, you know, you've, you've just said you don't want to write a book to show off and write <laughs> a book just for books, yeah. um, just for a book. But yeah, how do you, how do you balance that? And I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you again from your book where you say when you're talking about academia, as an industrial machine that seeks to obtain economic profit from knowledge instead of producing knowledge to prevent harms. So can I ask you to expand what you mean by that? And then, because it's a very easy question, what vision you might have for it being a different way? Yeah, so there is a very nice concept proposed by some colleagues within green criminology, which is the concept of the treadmill of production and mm. it is this idea that the contemporary world seeks to always produce and to always expand production mm. they use that idea to refer to commodities other types of commodities they are not thinking about knowledge they are not thinking about academic products they are thinking about things like clothes and cell phones and so on but I think that idea of the treadmill of production, uh, uh, a wheel that is always spinning at a mm. faster speed, also applies for academia. Because academia has now turned into a place to praise and to increase egos, mm. a place to achieve fame, a place that is not really concerned with what happens with the victims, but a place concerned with how researchers increase their popularity. And this mm. is only understandable because academia is another component of the capitalist system. So I would not be honest if I were to say that I have not gone into that. We are all, all part of this system. We are all mm. forced to publish and produce more and uh, try and go for the best journals and try to go for the best publishers and try to mm. say, yeah, look at me, I'm a star. Um, 
But of course, that doesn't help mm. with this terrible situation the world is experiencing. This yeah. depressing context. So I don't think we need to stop producing. I don't think we need to stop publishing books. I need, I think that what we need to do is to have an intention behind what we do. I think we have to be honest by saying here, this is knowledge, but I want this knowledge to be useful for something. And I'm going mm. to commit myself to do something other than just writing, other than just increasing my popularity. So, so I, I, I would make a call for people to still producing good knowledge. We need high quality knowledge mm. because otherwise people will say, yeah, you're an activist to just produce uh, stuff that is not that good. We need to produce very solid stuff, but we also mm. need to commit to have an intention with that knowledge. And so thinking about it at the other end, if once you've, you're following your intention yeah. and and being as concentrated as you can and what impact are you hoping to achieve what, and what does what would impact mean to you yeah so so i i also think i forgot to answer part of your <clears> question <throat> which is how i distribute my my energies and my time uh, and i think this is kind of connected to this question you're asking now what kind of Great. impact i want to have mm. Mm. And then I go back to your to your comment that I really liked. We are just one. You're just one person, one yeah. individual. And there's just so much you can do, right? Mm, mm. But then I think you have to be conscious about that fact, but don't let that fact stop you from doing mm what you think can contribute, improve the situation in the world. So I, I don't want to talk about what other people do, but I want to say that I try to distribute my time in a way that it is not only beneficial for me, but that mm. can potentially help others and make others creators of change because we I am only one but if I cooperate with others we are going to be many so it's about spreading this idea and then I distribute I try to I love writing and I try to write a couple hours a day but then I try mm -hmm. to use my energies to also uh, cooperate with other people especially from these communities, from this, uh, to, to the people that mm. somehow mistakenly I have referred to as marginalized, because they are marginalized by some segment of the society, not by, by all the society, but it's, it's just a simplification. So what I try mm. to do is to cooperate with them in a way of knowledge exchange. I can learn a lot from them, a lot, mm. but I think I can also give them something, some tools. Mm. So 
and you know them, I have a group of researchers, they come from diverse indigenous communities, they have had difficulties uh, in the academic, when, when doing their studies, so I try to use my time, my experience, my the privileges that come with academia to try and, let me say, empower, although it's not the perfect word, but to try mm. to make their voices louder, to try mm. to give them other tools to produce more knowledge that can help to end ecological discrimination. So, so mm. that's the kind of impact that I want to have. That is, yeah. that is the impact that I, that I seek. I want to, I consider myself, and this is not going to sound, to sound very humble, but I think I consider myself as methodologically strong. And I'm not mm. saying this to praise myself, but I'm saying this to say that by being that, I want others to be that as well, because I want many people producing good knowledge that help us contribute, uh, confront all these drivers of ecological destruction. Mm. Uh, so, so that is the impact I want to, to have, to share these ideas, to give uh, as many as people, as many people as possible tools and to inspire. I think, I think that's part of the message to, to, to share this passion for the topic. Great. And who would you say you are aiming those energies towards? And obviously you've just given a really good example of speaking to those communities and sharing knowledge and exchanging knowledge with those communities. But thinking directly for the book, who, who would you say you're trying to get through to the most? I think I'm trying to have an impact both on those groups and communities that I want to have as allies, but also an impact on those who do not agree with me. Mm. Because I think that's crucial. I think that's a common mistake in academia to only talk with our allies, to only mm. talk with those who agree with us, and yeah. then to avoid those who disagree with us. And mm. then we are not doing anything because everyone will keep behaving as they have always behaved. They will keep thinking as they have always thought. And then the challenge is to, to reach more people with the intention of establishing a conversation in which yeah. we can nuance our positions in a way, if, if that is good for the cause, and we can learn from each other, we can get new lessons, we can find solutions, and we can perhaps uh, persuade people to change behaviors, to change ways of thinking. We should, of course, always be open ourselves to change how we think, if mm. 
that contributes to reducing harm and suffering. Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that because part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast at all is to try and bring different groups together that wouldn't usually discuss. And it might not necessarily be about having different opinions, but it might be people working in different circles on similar topics. And I know that you've worked on these areas from a variety of different angles. And you've spoken mainly in terms of your position in the academic world at the moment. But what would you say to, to other academics about um, the work of others, whether it be some kind of activists or practitioners or whatever it may be, just so that we can bring those different communities together? Do you think there's anything that academics could do differently or vice versa? Yes, I think, I think we can learn from your example. Uh, I think you have a lot to contribute. I think we should uh, take many lessons from what you're doing because but using your time to create these podcasts is a very powerful tool to create a dialogue between different groups, but ac- academics, practitioners, uh, yeah, etc., etc., et activists, and so on. <laughs> Thanks, so, I didn't, I, I wasn't saying it so that you would say that. No, no, I, 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 this was not rehearsed yeah. at all, but yeah. I, I really mean it. I, I, I think... I'll, uh, I'll send you the money later. <laughs> I think I think we as scholars, we are lacking certain skills, most of us at least. Uh, and we are so focused at writing, learning how to publish in high quality journals, achieving impacts, increasing our impact factors, that we forget that we also need other skills. And mm. some of those skills is how to communicate with other groups, how to spread the word. And then we also have to acknowledge our limits. Not everyone is, ex- is an expert in everything. Uh, but mm. then that's the, that's the point of collaborating. I think we just have to get together and do stuff. And then... To, to, to scholars, and this is not my idea, I gain inspiration from Niels Christie, from Howard Becker, who have written extensively about this. And that's why I really appreciate you uh, mm. helping me with the language as well. When I, I get too technical and too complicated, you also have to understand that English is not my first language. Uh, but then their point is use the language in as a simple way as possible. Try mm. to include everyone in the conversation. Why use big words when you can say things in a simple ma- manner? Mm. So yeah. that's something that the scholars definitely, we definitely need to learn that, but also be open to, to learning, to listening from others. Uh, they might talk differently, but in the end, I really believe that there's a lot of people that are really trying to contribute to have a better world with less suffering, with less violence, with less destruction. Well, I think that's a a great place to leave it on. Other than I ask this to everybody, so I don't want to miss asking it to you. 
It's a hypothetical question. Right. And that's if we had a room that we could put, say, 50 people in, and you had half an hour to speak to them about anything you wanted to, who would you put in that room, and what would you be saying to them? <laughs> that, is, that is quite a question, huh? Hmm. <laughs> but I, I also want to ask you, is it just me saying things to them, or is it also them coming back at me with replies and more like a conversation? Yeah. It's, it's your room. Yeah. You've got it for half an hour it, it with 50 of anyone in the world. Right. Ah. You don't have to say people. You can just say, you know, generic titles or anything or whatever you want. Right. It's your room. No, I think, I think my room would be a pleasant conversation because I don't, <laughs> I don't enjoy monologues that much. Although I, yeah. I, I enjoy talking. Uh, but uh, I would mix. First... I really, there's something that I always try to achieve and it is to get voices from all the regions of the world. Mm. So I have this series of special issues that are called Voices from America, Voices from Asia, Voices from Africa. Uh, mm. so, so in my room, definitely, there would be people from all the regions of the world, hopefully representing different ethnicities, uh, different classes. Uh, um, I would like to be this big mix of people with different colors, accents, a uh, very mm -hmm. colorful room. Uh, definitely a lot of gender variation. I would not want to be some sort of uh, male uh, room, nor even yeah. just um, male and female. I would like to have also a lot of diversity in terms of gender. And then I would have to have the right to include people, I think, have a lot of power to decide, because I think mm -hmm. it would be very important to to have a conversation with them. So I would include people that I really don't like, like mm. the former Colombian president, Álvaro Uribe, who is accused for many serious behaviors. Uh, mm. Also other powerful people, like of course Donald Trump and other decision makers. But I would also love to include some of my idols and role models hmm. like Mandela, uh, like people who, who have really struggled, perhaps I don't agree with the methods, but who had a conviction and, and clear ideals like Che Guevara. Uh, and uh, there are many Colombian indigenous women that I really admire, like hmm. Antiquigua, she is uh, this Colombian indigenous po uh, politician. So if it is a conversation, then I would like to have all the people mm -hmm. in my room. And it would be, what would the topic be? The topic, yeah. For half an hour. I was almost... You only all, have half an hour, yeah, so. Jesus. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was all forgetting about that part. The topic, <laughs> the, my favorite topic is about, yeah. is life. And I really like to talk about 
the happiness, but also the sadness in life. I like mm. to discuss the, the, human, the human side of life. All those yeah. things that really make us really smile, genuinely be happy, but also those things that make us sad. Because that is a topic that can teach us a lot about what it means to be human and about how mm. people, how different people see reality, what they have learned, what they have experienced. And I think that's a beautiful conversation. Well, I, if, if you had 49 in there, I'd love to be the 50th. It sounds like it would be a brilliant conversation. Yeah, you're, you're more and, than uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe I can just sit and listen through the window. Um, <laughs> This sounded brilliant, and I really like the sentiments you you bring there because you know I wasn't joking when I say I, I love that you be, you began your forward saying you had confusion in your mind, and I think there's so many so many ways we feel pressure to have to perform and and to show that we you know there's we're not vulnerable at all uh, in all aspects of life, but you know when we're talking about our work and so much so many of us are driven and define us our well-beings by how well we perform at work and um, to to hear people that have achieved so much and have done so well to acknowledge that it is tough and that they can be vulnerable I think it's it's a really important message by itself let alone all this really interesting stuff that you've been talking about so so thank you for that and I'm sure I'm not the only one who would find it interesting so if people would like to follow your work read your new book and just follow you generally, what's the best place for them to, to find you? There, they can reach me out in every place. I usually reply to everyone <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, so they can find me on Facebook. Uh, just write my name. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, perhaps through Omar. You have uh, linked me, so there you also find me. If you Google yes, my I'll be tweeting. yeah, if you Google my name David Rodriguez Goyes or David Rodriguez Goyes as you prefer, you will <laughs> find my email address. You will find my ResearchGate profile. So if you just send me a message, I will. I promise I will be replying. Brilliant, David. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you, Omar. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your room. You're welcome to mine. Uh, it was <laughs> a, a pleasure. It was a very pleasant conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and that's the show. Since the episode last week, the podcast has hit over a thousand plays across 31 countries, which I'm really happy about in such a short space of time. So thank you to all my brilliant guests and to all the people who have shared the podcast with their friends or their colleagues who they thought would also like the show. So please continue to do that and I will speak to you next time. Cheers. Cheers.